So today we're starting a brand new uh, sermon series on the letter of 1 Peter. And if you've been with us for the past several weeks, we were looking at the Gospel of Mark. And so in a lot of ways, we're looking at uh, a very similar, we're looking at a letter that the Apostle Peter is writing uh, to churches. And we, we're going to see a lot of the similar themes that we see from the Gospel of Mark as the Apostle Peter is the, the eyewitness behind the, the Gospel of Mark. And so as we are leaning into First uh, Peter today, we're calling this entire sermon series that the, we're calling this entire, entire sermon series enti- Exiles, Life on the Margins. And let me just explain that title uh, for you very specifically. Now, scholars use the phrase post-Christian nation to describe the time that we currently live in. Very specifically, it describes the cultural shift away from the cultural moment when Christianity was at the center of it. And there's this one book entitled After Christendom that outlines this cultural shift. This cultural shift includes several things. It it includes and describes the shift that emerges, the culture that emerges when the Christian faith is no longer coherent to the society around it. That's one shift, that Christianity no longer makes sense to our cultural moment. That's one thing that's going on. It also includes the the shift and a decline that's marked when Christianity is no longer at the center but at the margins. That Christians are no longer the majority but the minority. That Christians are no longer settlers or residents but exiles. That Christianity is no longer privileged or in control but one group of many witnessing to others. So when we, when we hear this word, post-Christian nation, the simple fact that these scholars are describing is that culture is changing. And here we are as Christians, and, and it's one simple thing to know about Christians is that we actually take great pride in our faith. And so when we see our faith, when we see God's word questioned, when we see Christ mocked or ridiculed, we respond. Because we, but we respond out of really a angst that's going on in our hearts and our lives. And no, no, no one likes being a minority. No one likes being pushed to the periphery of society. And no one likes being mocked or ridiculed. So how should we respond? That's what Peter is writing into. How should we respond? Because Peter is writing a letter to speak into this angst. He's writing to a group of Christians who share that angst just for very different reasons. And Peter's main contention throughout this entire letter is that not only will we survive while living on the margins, but we'll actually thrive. And the main reason that we will thrive on the margins, the reason why we will thrive and flourish while being marginalized is because you were chosen for exile. That's where Peter picks up this letter. And so we're reading today from 1 Peter verses, 1 Peter 1, verses 1 through 9. Uh, you can, I'm reading from the ESV. You can follow along in your worship guides, or you can follow along on the walls behind me. So let's uh, dive into God's word this morning. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles to the dispersion in Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, 
according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and mercy, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary. You have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us one more time. Father, we thank you for your word and be with us now as we look at your word. May your spirit be at work in our hearts that we would see your beauty, but we would also see our brokenness and our sin and that we would also see your amazing love for us through son Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. As we're starting out the this sermon series on on first peter peter is writing to these these christians and these christians are 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 best understood through a certain lens of being strangers and exiles and immigrants strange like immigrants are truly strangers in a foreign land and peter is writing to these christians who are feeling like strangers in a foreign land and the one thing to know that uh, that when immigrants come to and arrive in the, the this land of the free and the home of the brave they face many challenges and some of you know this but i i'm a son of an immigrant as my mother moved here from great britain and even when you even here's my mother who is uh from the an anglo uh, ethnicity as she is moving here there's still many barriers there's the language barrier that all of a sudden when people start talking like, oh, it's in the boots, that's simply being, oh, it's in the trunk of the car, not on the thing that goes on your foot. There is truly a, over, there is a language barrier. And even now today, as we uh, experience in 2019, that there is overt racism that's applied to, uh, I to immigrants. And while it, that racism today in 2019 is actually very different from the uh, overt racism that was uh, going on 100 years ago, which was also applied then to Irish and Germans and Polish so there's a lot of challenges that immigrants simply face. So it could be the language barrier, overt racism, or more subtle microaggressions. But all these things all together make the immigrants feel like this land is not their home. That's what Peter's writing into today. He's writing to Christians who are feeling like this world is not their home. And... I want to just get into this very quickly. 
And so as we, and the, and the, how I wanted to get into this very quickly is that Peter uses a metaphor of exile to help us understand this. And this is going to bring us to our first point as like the entire idea for today's sermon is that you are chosen for exile. The first point to look at this is that you are exiled. You are exiled. And Peter is writing, look at verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, is writing to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. He is writing to these Christians who are exiled and dispersed to Turkey, what is now modern-day Turkey. And so this just is a contextual issue. Why are Christians exiled at this time to Turkey? Well, Karen Jobes, she is a brilliant biblical scholar, and she points out that these Christians are literal and physical strangers in exile in a foreign land. That Rome, the, the dominant authority and power and empire of this day, typically colonized areas within their empire. Sometimes they would even forcibly resettle people groups on the basis of their religion or some other reason. The one rule that was unanimous and uniform throughout the entire Roman Empire was that the people who are being forcibly relocated could not be Roman citizens. So these Christians are being forcibly resettled by the Roman government. And the Roman Emperor Claudius is actually known to forcibly relocate and colonize the five regions that are mentioned here in verse 1 of Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And so when you read the book of Acts, you actually encounter other people who are being forcibly re relocated by Claudius, specifically, specifically Priscilla and Aquila, the husband and wife uh, duo that ministered to Paul. And so Peter is writing to people who are true and genuine and literal strangers and exiles because they are truly living in a strange and foreign land. These Christians are being marginalized, not necessarily persecuted at this time. There's a difference between marginalization and persecution. And, but these Christians are being marginalized by their society. They are being alienated in their relationships. They are being threatened with losing honor and power and prestige, all for their faith in Jesus Christ. And there's this one book, Christians, as the Romans saw them, if you would wonder what the book's about, it's actually a great title, Christians, as the Romans saw them. And this book explains how ancient Romans saw and understood Christians. So it's a very fitting title, and it's specifically dealing with the years 50 to 150 A.D. And so I want to just summarize some of the findings from that book. But Romans would look at Christians and see Christians like they were a club, and that's not a positive thing whatsoever. One main critique is that if you were in a club, then you were effectively antisocial. You did not want to belong to the typical and normal Roman social hierarchy as you were a part of a club. The second biggest critique from this book is that, that Christians were superstitious. That here are Romans looking at Christians, and they're seeing Christians gather together to pray to a dead guy. They're seeing these Christians, and as they celebrate the Lord's Supper, and the, literally reading Scripture and saying, hey, this is my body. Do this in remembrance of me. Romans will look at Christians and say, guys, man, you're superstitious. 
And so when you put these two things together, when you put these two things in action, it has social and economic consequences. And so there's a, this historical account of Christians effectively causing the collapse of local markets because they would not buy the meat that's offered to gods. And, and Christians also had another no-no. They were a multicultural group. They mixed together from different social classes, genders, and ethnicities, all major violations within Roman society. And one thing that Peter highlights in chapter 2 is that you're, the church that Peter's writing to faced suffering. And this, what he describes there in 1 Peter 2 is exactly the effects of, of, of suffering that is detailed in this book. That we see Christians being slandered and interrogated, being threatened, and later even experiencing physical harm. That's how the Romans saw the church. But as I was going through that, does, does this dynamic sound familiar? Because it should. Because Peter, in a sense, is writing to us. If you faithfully follow Jesus, then you, you, all you have to do is look on the news or go online or talk with your friends. Or perhaps you have personally experienced this, that you know that as you faithfully follow Jesus, you are being marginalized. You are being exiled for your faith in Jesus Christ. And I want to lean into this idea. About 10 years ago, these two committed Christians and researchers, and, and I commend their books to you, David Kinneman and Gabe Lyons, wrote this book, Unchristian. What a new generation really thinks about Christianity and why it matters. And they summarized that for, through their research that Christianity today is known for being hypocritical, political, sheltered, and judgmental. And then even, they go on to answer this, that 91% of the people they surveyed thought Christians were anti-homosexual. And let me lean into this. Because, and I want to lean into this by looking at the life of Christ because our Christian witness greatly concerns me. I'm less concerned about what's going on outside our church community than how we are known as God's people, as Jesus' followers. So I want to specifically lean into this. Was Jesus known as a hypocrite? Was he known as being judgmental or even anti-sinners? It's quite the opposite. Jesus is called the friend of sinners. He's called the friend of tax collectors. He's called the friend of sinners. He would eat with them. He would break bread with them. He would, he would embrace the moral scandal of their lives by being around them. But so as I po point out Jesus, Jesus never shied away from exposing the matters of their heart. He never had a problem pointing out sin. But as he would do that, he would always love and respect and honor their humanity. Just think about this one story of the rich young ruler. As this man comes to Jesus and says, hey, what, much I, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And there's this brief, short discussion. Jesus says, hey, take all the things that you have and sell them. But even before he said that, Jesus says, hey, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and strength. And the man says, I've done those things. And he says, okay, take your money and sell it. And then the rich young ruler walks away sad. And, and Jesus looks on him, and he is sad because he, what Jesus is doing right there, he's, he is touching the idolatry of the heart, is that this young man was not loving God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. 
He was actually loving the money and his treasure. But the thing I want to focus on is as this man's walking away, Jesus is looking at him with compassion. He looks at him at compassion. So when Jesus was around the the moral scandal of, of sinners, all the while Jesus would look at them, love them, and, and respect and honor their humanity and enjoy friendship with them. And we, as the followers of Jesus Christ, need to strive to be known as Jesus it was. And that's where our motivation needs to be. And, but what's, what happens as we look around our cultural moment today at the church in America at large, uh, there's different ways that Christians, American Christians, are responding to this collective angst of being marginalized. So, for example, if you are feeling alienated, and, and, and these responses actually always t- uh, have to do with the matters of our heart. So let's just think about this on a personal level. When you are, are feeling pushed to the sides of where you're being marginalized, think about this. If you are being alienated, perhaps you just say to yourself, you know, I want to withdraw from this moment. I'm just going to take a step back. I'm going to disengage at this moment. Perhaps that's one thing. Another thing is where you want to uh, accommodate and adjust your faith to fit in, to be more popular, to be more culturally acceptable. Perhaps you also want to hunker down and just speak even louder. Perhaps it's all these things. And one of the things that we're going to discover over the next few weeks is that uh, these three options of withdrawal or accommodation or even uh, hunkering down, none of these options are fitting for God's people whatsoever. And we're going to uh, see this unpacked for us over the next coming weeks, over the next few weeks. And because the truth is that as you're going to follow Jesus Christ in 2019, you are going to be exiled. You're going to be exiled. But we need to be ensure that we are being exiled for the right reasons, that we are being exiled for faith in Jesus Christ. And it's, in fact, what Peter goes on to say, where our hope comes from is our relationship to God and our life with him that is meant to encourage you and sustain you as you are, in fact, exiled. Which brings us to our second point, that you are chosen. So the first point is that you are exiled. Now, you are chosen for exile. And we see this in verses 1 and 2. So Peter's writing to those elect exiles. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and and peace be multiplied to you. So before I wade into the deep theological waters that are right before us, let me point out a few things that makes Peter's letters stand out as we compare them to the other letters that are within the New Testament. If you look at the other books in the New Testament, like, say, uh, the letters of Paul, and look at them, comparing them with Peter's, they they actually start out very differently. When Paul is writing to uh, writing a letter, say the book of Colossians, he write, he says this, I, I Paul to the churches in Colossians, in Colossae, and then he r- writes the same thing to Thess- the churches in Thessalonica. When he writes the book of Galatians, he says to the churches in in Galatia as well. So Paul r- often writes his letters very specifically to the uh, the church to the. Uh, the, uh, the Greek word is ekklesia, to the assembled gathering of God's people. That is who 
Paul writes to. And, and sometimes Paul would even start off his letters and say, hey, to the saints. And in that sense, he's writing to the, the, the holy people who are washed and cleansed by Jesus' blood. He's writing to the living saints. But, the, but Peter's language here in 1 Peter and the language of also the Apostle John and 2 John, he, they are writing their letters to the elect. And so this brings up a, a new language for us. This brings up language of election. And this is a language that we have not ever dug into in the entire roughly two years that Ironworks has been here. And so I want to dive into this language. Because theologically, this introduces us to the notions of election and also with that predestination. And perhaps the best summary verse of the, of the doctrine of election is actually John 15, verse 16, which we read last week and considered last week. But John 15, 16 says this, You did not choose me, but I chose you. And what's striking about that entire story is Jesus is talking with his 12 disciples. And he's, he's talking to Peter, he's talking to James and John and all the disciples. And he tells them, hey guys, you know the first time we met one another, you did not choose me. I chose you. I'm the one who came to you and said, hey, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. So, so that one verse helps us actually understand some of the dynamics that uh, election is, it gets us to and introduces us to. And, Paul, and, and Peter continues with this. He says that we are elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ. So we, as Christians, are chosen by the foreknowledge of God. As Christians, we are consecrated. We are washed by the Spirit, and we are cleansed by the Son. And Peter's point is that we need to take home and consider this. What he's pointing out to us is that our salvation does not begin with us, it does not begin with our conversion. In fact, begins our salvation ultimately begins within the heart of God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Our salvation begins within the Trinity. And oftentimes when theologians unpack this doctrine, perhaps you've, uh, unpa you've uh, done your own study as well, but when theologians unpack this doctrine, it actually tends to remain an abstract idea. And when that happens, it's actually empty of God's love for us. And I want to really challenge that idea. And, so, and I want to do this by considering it from a different angle. And I want to think about it from the context of a relationship, because this is ultimately what our life with God is, a relationship. So here's, here's the, the angle I'm coming from. If you're married or in a romantic relationship, who took the, the first step within your relationship? Who took the initiative in your entire relationship? For me, my wife was the one who asked me out to a sorority dance. She took the initiative and asked me out. Even when I said, hey, we're just friends, well, 11 years later, not even 11 years later, 13 years later, here we are, and one kid and another on the way. That's one example. And for my older sister, and trust me, she's given per me permission to share the story. And as a younger brother, you would think I would not ask for permission, but I did. But for my older sister, she was once asked out three times by the same guy over who had the, this crush on her for nine years. But she was asked out by this one guy uh, three times over a span of really three and a half years. And then one time the, he asked her out, and later 
asked her to marry him. She said yes, and now there's three kids. So when we think about our relationships, this is where I'm going for. When we think about our relationships, whether they be romantic or simply friendships, someone always takes the first step. Someone always initiates. Someone always intentionally moves towards the other person. It could be as simple as, hey, do you want to hang out sometime? Or, hey, do you want to go see a movie? Or, hey, let's, hang, let's just do, do something. That's someone taking the first step and, and taking the initiative. Biblically, when we look at Scripture, God is the one who takes the intentional step towards us. God is the one who is moving towards us sinners. He's intentionally taking the first step in love towards us so that he would have a relationship with us. And so what we see Peter pointing out to us is that God is the one who is moving towards you. That's what we are seeing here from 1 Peter. God is the one who is moving towards you. And this is encouraging to God's people who are exiles. And I want to come back to that by moving into our third point. Because Peter is pointing to something now in verses 3 and 4. He says that you are exiled. You are exiled because you're chosen, and you are exiled because you are citizens of a different world. This is the third point. You are a citizen of a different world. This is 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. And Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. And so right here, what Peter is getting into is the fact that we are a citizen of a different world. And I want to simply just point out something about citizens, because this is something that if you are an American citizen, this is something that we honestly take for granted day in and day out of our everyday lives. And I'm I'm coming from this, and I mentioned this much earlier, that because my mother's British, I'm standing here today as a dual citizen. I'm both British and American. That, and so like I have like a British passport and I've read in, inside of the British passport. And it was years ago. It's no, it, this is no longer inside the front of the, of the Brit- British passport. But the passport says that this, that is like all the rights and the privileges of, of the British Empire rest upon this, whole, this passport holder. And all protections of the, Brit- of the British Empire rest upon this, this person as well. The, the Ameri- our American passports say something very similar, where it's the idea is that uh, may all the rights and, and courtesies of, uh, of being an American citizen be awarded this person in, as they travel abroad. And so, th- how, and so as we lean into this idea of being, of being an American citizen, if you want to, not an American citizen, if you, actually, yes, let's lean into that. If you want to be an American citizen, which is a special thing. It's a special thing. You either have to be born in the States or you have to go through a rigorous naturalization process. And it's thorough. It is thorough. This process includes some of the following. You have to be over 18. You have to be a legal permanent resident of the United States for at least five years. You have to both speak and understand English. And then you also have to have a good moral character, which I'm going to take, in, take to mean that you have no criminal record. And so going back into the 
the people that, uh, that whom Peter is writing to, if someone wanted to be a Roman citizen, then you had to serve in the military for 20 years. You could buy it, or you could be born into it. And so Peter knows that becoming a citizen is a challenge. It is a process. It is a long process. But it also opens up a world of possibilities. And this is actually what Peter's writing about. He's, he says very specifically that according to God's great mercy, he has caused you to be born again. And he's using language of being a citizen of God's realm. But let's think about it from a, a different way. Have you ever heard about the birth lottery? In America, we like to think that everyone has an equal shot at making a good living, but research shows us that is not the case. Your family of origin matters. Your parents matter. Where you are born and, and, and where you grow up matters. How you have access to education and various social networks, all these things matter. And so the birth lottery basically says this. It all depends. Your success depends on where you are born. If you are born to good parents in a safe town with access to good schools, then you won the birth lottery. That's the logic of this thing called the birth lottery. And Peter is simply pointing out to you that you have won the birth lottery. You have won the birth lottery. You are born again. Where, he, where Peter goes with this is that you are citizens of a new and different world because God elected you. You are citizens of a different world because the Son cleansed you and the Holy Spirit perfected you. We are a part of God's family because of his love for us. So unlike our American culture that says, in order to be a citizen, you must be people of good character, God's, God's, God's world says, I love you. That's the entire basis of our citizenship in, in God's world. We did not have to serve in the military. We did not have to show off our religiosity. We did not have to pass a criminal background check because the truth is we'd be guilty, guilty as charged. That is the truth of our life, as we are sinners. And so we are citizens of a different world because our king died for us and dealt with our sins. And so the theological phrase for all of this is regeneration. And regeneration is something that the Holy Spirit does to you. When you are regenerated, then you had an old way of living. But now, because of the Holy Spirit's working in your life, you, ha you, are, you, you now have a new way of living. And, and we'll see Peter bring this up again and again in the coming weeks. That because we are citizens of a new country, our marriages won't be different. Our, our work relationships are going to be different. Even how we talk and share the gospel as we evangelize, that is even going to be different as well. It's going to be different. But this world that we reside in, not this world that we reside in, the, the, the country that we are citizens of is different. God's world is beautiful and different. And we have an inheritance. And look at how, how Peter describes it. We have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Uh, who by God's power, did not read verse 5, but 
I want to read it. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. See, what, what Peter is telling us right here is that when we are citizens of, of any, actually back up, when we are citizens of any country, the simple point is that we have rights and we have privileges. We even have protection when we are members of and citizens of, of a country. And what Peter is pointing out to us is that as citizens of a different country, when we are citizens of God's world, we have rights. We have rights of being sons and daughters. And that privilege is an inheritance. And that inheritance itself is not protected by us. It's not protected by our own religiosity. It's not protected by us in any way, shape, or form. Our inheritance and our privileges and our rights are protected by God himself for our salvation. That will one day be revealed to us in Jesus Christ. And so with this, we also see how as citizens of, of a different world, we even have new protection that is coming from God himself. And so it's because we are members of a different country that you will be mocked. It is because you are a citizen of a different country that you are reviled and suffering for your king and even being marginalized. This is because our king is different. Our king, Jesus Christ, is different. And everything about our lives should be different. Our home, our marriages, our workplace, all these things should be different. And so, no wonder, it, and so because it's different, it also should be visible to others. So, no wonder we're going to be marginalized for our faith. Friends, let me, let me conclude on this. Friends, ultimately God shows you and made you a citizen of the new heavens and the new earth. And as a citizen, you have these rights and these privileges and protection by the realm of God. You'll be mocked. But Peter is writing for a very specific reason. The entire purpose that he is writing is found for us at the very end of his, of his book. He says that I am writing so that God's, he's writing because God's grace is sufficient for you. And then he calls upon us to remain in it, to stay in it, because God's grace is enough. And so this is, as we've been going through this, what I want to just draw out to you is that you have a new identity. You have a new identity. Yes, you feel like this, you are a stranger. Yes, you feel like you are in exile. And that is because you are. You are a stranger in this world because you are a citizen of another world. You feel like you are exiled, and that is because you have actually been chosen for exile. I want to put this, these, because these words are comforting. And to really put it very strongly, this is what I want to say. That you were chosen by God for exile. And even by the logic of your new birth, of your citizenship, is that you were in fact born to live in this moment. And so God wants to come to you and strengthen you with his grace and love and completely surround you by his love and equip you so that you would faithfully follow him. He has given you everything you could possibly need to faithfully follow him. And this includes, and this all stems from, one simple thing. His identity, your new identity. Your new identity is that you are loved by God. You are privileged by God. You are sons and daughters. You are citizens of his world. And you 
And because of all that, you have an inheritance that will never perish, that will never be destroyed. And it's all because of God's love for you. Let's pray.